On a beautiful run through the park on a pleasant day, you can easily get lost. No, no, no. She didn't kill him. Huh? In your true crime podcast. It was the pool guy. So obvious. Whatever motivates you works for us. It's all about letting your run be your run. And Brooks is here for every runner. Doing the research and sweating the details to create gear that works for you. It's your run. Brooks. Run happy. Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and before we get to today's show, we're going to do something a little different given the circumstances. On Wednesday afternoon, Jack Fraser and I recorded an episode together, and then, as you know now, hours later, Kyle Beach went on TSN and held his remarkably brave interview with Rick Westhead, in which he came forward as the John Doe in the sexual assault lawsuit against the Chicago Blackhawks and spoke to the world about his experiences. And so, given that, we decided not to run the show that we had recorded before on Thursday morning like we usually would have just out of respect to to the gravity of the situation and honestly it didn't feel right to be posting a show talking about hockey and pretending like nothing was happening that was more important um, in the hockey world without acknowledging what had happened and speaking on it and so you know while this is something that is incredibly uncomfortable and and, and for me as well um, you know it certainly doesn't come naturally there's a reason why we tend to focus our analysis on this show to what happens on the ice because it's something that I know a lot about. I feel like I can speak about it confidently, and um, and that's why we do that. But I think in this case, it, it's a really important thing for us to to all talk about it as a hockey community. If, if someone like Kyle Beach, who has gone through what they've gone through, can be so brave to go up in front of the world and, and share his story, then the least we can do is, is speak up in support of him and all other survivors. So... I don't know how how you can be a human being and, and read the report from the independent investigation and listen to Beach speak in his interview and not just feel entirely sick about everything. Uh, it was devastating hearing him talk about how Brad Aldrich and, and the Blackhawks organization not only affected his career, but much more importantly, his entire life since. Uh, it's been 11 years, and and that's a long time for, for this to be coming to light and, and for you know justice to be happening. So I... I don't know how you can, you know, I was just furious um, kind of trying to reconcile all of that and the fact that it took this long for people responsible to to finally start being held accountable. And, and, you know, while Brad Aldridge is the one who obviously committed the crime, uh, the scary part is how many bystanders there were in that organization that seemed to just ultimately prioritize trying to win hockey games over over the freaking health and safety of a human life. And that cowardly inability to step in and do the right thing allowed that monster to go on and work with kids and hurt others. And, and that's the, a really upsetting part about this. Listen, we all make mistakes. And, and this is ultimately, I think, far more than some mistake you just make in passing. This is something that they knew about for years. And every single day they came to the office choosing to do nothing about it because it was in their own best interests. Like a, a mistake for a coach like John Qu- Joel Quenville is filling out the lineup card incorrectly before a game and then having to play with one less player. This is not a mistake. Uh, and so I'm, because of that, I'm glad that the league stepped in and finally pushed Quenville out the door, uh, although it is still insane to me that they allowed him, that the Panthers allowed him to coach one final game even after the report was made public. We'll see what happens with Kevin Chevalier off next. Uh, but I don't, I don't see how any of the people involved can in good conscience be allowed to to continue being in any sort of position of power where they're responsible for overseeing the well-being of their players. They, they shouldn't be allowed to continue the enjoy the benefits of their cushy jobs in the league. We, we have to get these guys out of the game and actually create meaningful change beyond just throwing a Band-Aid on it, blaming it all on one person and just calling it a day because it's clearly a deeper issue. And, and so that requires demanding accountability from the teams we're cheering for, uh, the league we follow, and the sport we love. And, and you know, for the league, um, it's, it's going to take significantly um, stronger actions than just, you know, a laughable $2 million fine that was levied against the Blackhawks, which is less than the $3 million they fined the Devils for Ilya Kovalchuk's contract. Like, what are, what are we doing here? How, um, how does that even make any sort of sense? We need to punish them still swiftly, severely, and, and where it actually hurts, whether it's draft picks, whether it's future cap space, whether it's a name removal from the cup. Um, so, yeah, it, it was just... 
it was a failure by the entire institution and, and that includes the players too the other players who who need to be better it's it's surreal still to this day comparing the quotes from people who are still in the league if they're playing for other teams and and those that aren't and, and feel like they can sort of speak openly about it like the difference in tone and transparency is, is just striking the ones with something to lose whether it's future job opportunities or, or whether it's current playing time or, or, or whatever they feel uh, are still looking out for themselves this very day like for a sport that so proudly uh, boasts about its leadership and character and teamwork a lot of these guys sure did let their teammate down and, and you know for someone um, like Jonathan Taves who uh, you know his leadership in particular has been lauded for all of these years and 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 just kind of trying to to reconcile that now I mean by continuing to say that he had no idea what was going on at the time he's either lying and 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 knew about it and just chose not to step up and do anything to help and, and that's obviously horrific or he somehow really was that clueless to what was going on and, and if that's the case then then he's just the absolute worst team captain in professional sports and, and there's no two ways about it so I don't there's no hear both sides or yeah but or oh well, these are actually good people in, in my uh, dealings with them this it's it not all of that is irrelevant it's, it's unacceptable from top to bottom and it needs to be treated as such and anything short of that quite frankly isn't enough so that's all I've got right now um, my heart goes out to Kyle Beach uh, all survivors of abuse and anyone that was affected personally by, by reliving this news um, including those who may be suffering right now in silence and feel like they're not being heard um, you are heard and we're here for you and I would hope that listeners of my show uh, would you know, this is nothing new, obviously, and I would hope that um, you would be able to feel that type of empathy and compassion as well. So thanks for listening to me ramble a little bit here. I, I don't have anything um, particularly profound to add that, that probably hasn't already been said far more eloquently by others, but I did want to use this platform to say something and just acknowledge what was going on and what was happening. So with that said, um, we're now going to get into the pre-recorded portion of the PDO cast because... That's what we do here. Uh, hopefully, if you're feeling up for it and you want to listen, it can provide an ounce of entertainment or escape for those of you that need it right now. Um, if not, I totally understand. There are significantly more important things happening in the hockey world right now, and, and, and that's that's totally reasonable as well. So I hope everyone is keeping well, uh, taking care of themselves, and have a good weekend, and we will talk soon. And joining me is my colleague from EP Ringside, my good buddy, Jack Fraser. Jack, what's going on, man? Not too bad. It's good to actually see you. Yeah, we're doing this in person in Toronto. Uh, this is episode 416, and we are recording it in the 416. So I had to make that little joke there. But um, how's it going, man? It's going okay. It's been a, a crazy start to the season. Yeah. Uh, and I don't just mean that in the, oh, you know, there's all these games and everything. I mean, everything has completely turned upside down in terms of how teams are actually doing compared to how they were supposed to so there's a whole lot of hot takes that are looking a little bit strange from the summer but i'm sure that there's going to be even more hot takes based on these first seven games that are going to look completely stupid in just two or three months or so so we better get as many as we can in before uh before they get disproven yeah i've had to um i've had to remind myself a number of times that it's a long season especially Maybe it's because I got so used to the 56-game sprint last year that like it felt like everything was kind of fast-tracked. This year, it's we're six games in for most of these teams. Some teams have played even less, so we need to tone it down a little bit. But here's the plan for today. So I thought it'd be fun to kind of bounce around and talk about some of the teams that have either underperformed or overperformed. I think especially the teams we had high expectations for heading into the year, like the elite teams that have come out of the gate struggling for whatever reason, I think... That's probably the most interesting topics for people to listen to, and, and yeah. we can kind of discuss why it's happened, how worried we are about it, sort of whether we need to adjust our expectations moving forward. So let's start with the Avs, because I believe they were pretty significantly, in terms of preseason over-unders, they were tops by by a fairly significant margin, and they've come out of the gate with a 2-4-1 two and four, two, four and one record, um, especially since the season opener where they kind of routed the Blackhawks. It's been a, a strange uh, start to the year for them, especially that three-game road trip where they went into Washington and just got completely pummeled by the Capitals. And we can talk more about the Capitals later if you want. But what do we make of this Avs team? Because, you know, based on everything we saw last regular season, they were about as dominant of a regular season team as we've seen since those 
mid-2000s Red Wings. And if anything, it seemed like they kind of got better on paper heading into this year. And, and so far, the results have not indicated that at all. Yeah, I mean, there wasn't really much reason to think that they were going to be that much worse uh, based on what they did in the offseason. I think a lot of people had kind of set themselves up for, oh, this Avs team is is not going to be quite as good because they lost, you know, Philip Grubauer. They lost a little bit of that depth. But uh, like you said, you know, whether it was projectors or, or betting odds or uh, the analytical predictive models, you know, every sense was that this team was just, you know, going to be pretty much as good as it was before. And if you look into the underlying numbers so far, you know, this isn't exactly like a PDO dip that you can completely project is going to reverse. It actually kind of reminds me of that Vegas series where it really Really seemed jarring to see the Avalanche get outplayed to the extent that they did in some of those Vegas games where you're seeing the Avs get outshot, you know, 30 to 20 or something like that. And you're just, you know, completely taken aback because you just, it's like the, the, you know, Emperor has no clothes. Like it, it really kind of surprises you. And if you look at some of the players who have poor underlying numbers, you know, you're talking about guys like McCarr and, and McKinnon right. who are really lagging behind, uh, you know, and that really kind of does take you into that. Like how much are you willing to put into you know, six or seven games so far, uh, compared to, you know, oh, we've never really seen this team have these kinds of struggles for any extended period of time before. Yeah, well, certainly. And, you know, it's worth noting beyond the fact that it is only, what, seven games for them. They haven't really been at full strength yet, right? Like, obviously, Vegas is kind of the extreme of this in terms of losing Pacioretty and Stone and Tuck, but McKinnon was out for the first two games. Then Landis Gog was suspended for two. Sam Gerrard is out now. Devon Davis hasn't played yet. But you're right. I think I, I, I was looking at this stat where um, I've got it down here right now. So McCarr and McKinnon have been on the ice for about 55 on five minutes so far together. And the Avs are down 6-2 and are getting outshot 26 to 15 in those minutes. And that's like, that's one of those things where with those two players, I mean, we've certainly never seen that before. And, and for each of those guys, it, just, it seems almost impossible that, it would be that poor, obviously, a 50-minute sample size. That could easily swing in just one good game. But that's like it's pretty jarring to see that just on when you pull up their page. Yeah. No, it seems strange to think that, you know, Jack Johnson is not the weak link on this team right now, which, I, I mean, personally, I expected that he Have you looked be. at Jack Johnson's 5-on-5 on ice stats? They're hilarious. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of players like that. Uh, Johnson, uh, Gudbranson is, is another guy who's had uh, – really nice on ice stats i personally hope that it continues for the rest of the season but i don't know if i put my money on i love it because he's played i think five games for them so far and, and there's been one goal and it was the one that he scored which was an insane highlight real goal and there's been like no high danger chances either way pretty much just nothing's been happening which i think if you're jack johnson and if you're the avalanche you'll take that any day of the week just basically go out there and just let nothing happen and then we'll send our top guys out there yeah well as a penguins fan that was what i was told was going to happen right. when he got signed and uh that wasn't quite the case so yeah i'm ready for the jack johnson glow up of 2022 i think something we do need to consider in this conversation is the effect that not having taves in the lineup is playing on this especially on Makar. i thought that um you know our good buddy jack Hahn put out his hockey hockey tactics 2021 book a while back and i finally got around to reading it recently while, while i was on my flight out here and he had this great chapter about Devontae's and sort of really captured what makes him such an interesting player because we know that his underlying numbers have been awesome for years now. But when you watch him, nothing particularly special is happening, right? Like he's not the best skater. He's not the biggest hitter. He's not the most skilled player, but his teams are so good with him on the ice. And, and he sort of talked about how he's kind of this guy that just extends plays for the people he plays with. He's like a facilitator, right? And, and you see that where he makes this little play where he goes back and retrieves the puck and gets it to Makar and absorbs the pressure. And then all of a sudden Makar is just able to basically skate out of the zone unimpeded and create a chance. And it's been much tougher sledding. So I think there certainly is something to that. It seems strange that for a team that's as talented as Colorado is to say, oh, they don't have Dewan Taves and they're just completely cratered. But sometimes like that little, that little glue or sort of that missing piece, like everything can come toppling down if you remove it from the equation. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, he was so good for them last year, you know, even more than the analytics people expected. Like, I think, you know, from, from my perspective, I was someone who had boosted him really, really hard before he ended up in Colorado. You know, even I was surprised by the fact that he was, you know, people were talking about him in the Norris conversation, which was, you know, a, a step above what I had anticipated ever happening. So uh, I think that that's a big loss. Obviously, Gerard, you know, even if he's not a top 50 Canadian player, uh, you know, I, I think that he also plays a really important role in their transition game as well. Yeah. And, you know, if they're especially, you know, from McCart's perspective, he's such an ambitious player and, and McKinnon as well. You know, you really do need those guys like 
uh, Taves who can just kind of calm things down a little bit and create that little bit of extra space. Otherwise, you do kind of risk ending up in a bit of a shootout and maybe getting pinned in a little bit. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, I think that's kind of what's happened with Carr so far, where he's already been on the ice for 10 5 5 goals against. And I think that's going to happen when you have a 9.06 PDO or whatever he's got. And that's obviously going to regress. But he's uncharacteristically and part of it might just be like i know he didn't play at all in the preseason i don't know much what to stock i'm gonna put into that but he just hasn't looked the way that i expected him look heading heading into the season and it bugs me because whenever we see a defenseman with high point totals i think the natural uh recourse is to be like well he sucks defensively right he's 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 cheating and 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 he's getting caught but he's scoring a lot and and that's all we care about for the norris and that really hasn't been the case especially last year like i thought makar was excellent at using his skating and his stick to defend entries and just have break plays up and they really just didn't spend any time in the defensive zone and this year it has been a bit of a, a bit of a circus in defending and there's been a couple plays where he's been undressed and hasn't looked good defensively and and so that just bugs me because it kind of like gives credence to all those lazy arguments that people tend to make for these skilled defensemen yeah well i mean if you've been in the norris conversation for your first two seasons i'm, I'm willing to allow you know, a, a little bit of time of, of getting undressed there. But I mean, speaking of the PDO thing, I think that it is worth also mentioning the goaltending, right. uh, which, you know, there was a lot of talk about the Grubauer Kemper thing. And, you know, the thing is, neither of them has been very good to start the year. Right. They, they both rank near the bottom and goal saved above expected. Uh, you know, I think in Kemper's case, there was a little bit of hesitance with him just because, you know, he really isn't as much of a known quality quantity as, as uh, Philip Grubauer had been, you know, in Grubauer's case, there were conversations about, Oh, is he overrated because of Colorado's team defense? Uh, that was a big conversation last year where he gets nominated for the Vesna on one hand. Uh, you have these public models saying, okay, well maybe he's a little overrated. And then you have these private models saying he's basically just like above water right. and, and Colorado is just that good defensively. Uh, and, you know, uh, he obviously goes to Seattle, a little bit of a, an open up. We might talk about that later. Uh, in Kemper's case, you know, he's just not quite been up to that level, even of what Grubauer was last year. And, and I think that it is costing them a little bit. Uh, and, and he's certainly shown that he has the talent to be a, a quality starting goalie and, and maybe even an, an upgrade over what Grubauer has been for them in the past couple of years. But uh, he just hasn't shown it yet. And I think that is just kind of aggravating those issues that are underlying that we've already seen with the Avs. Yeah. I did, a, I did a preseason sort of uh, betting pod with with Dom where we were talking about our favorite prop bets and stuff. And I was like, Phil, uh, Darcy Kemper, was, his over-under for save percentage was like 9-10 or something. And I was like, I, I don't see a scenario where it's going to be less just because that team was so good defensively last year. And I do think he is a better or at least higher upside goalie than Philip Grubauer. And, and sure enough, it, it certainly has not played out that way. But it is six games. So so what's, let's put a bow on, on the abs conversation then. I think we both kind of seem to be like have our eyebrows raised a little bit just because it hasn't been like they've been super unlucky. I mean, they have a bit, but the underlying process hasn't been what we're used to seeing, but it's a bunch of talented players with a good track record and they don't have all of their pieces right now. So I think we're willing to give them a bit more time than, than just seven games. Right. Uh, yeah. I'm not willing to have them out of the playoffs yet. Although two or three games, maybe we'll change our minds on that. <laughs> all right. Let's, um, let's, let's switch gears then. Do you want to talk about, uh, I got the Leafs next on my list, which yeah, I think we do have to go with the, the Leafs. I'm surprised you didn't lead with them just to get the get, get the, the clicks, clicks right. Yeah. Well, I mean, if people already start listening, that's all that really matters. But hopefully, they've stuck around for this this segment as well. Um, so, I'll, I'll start the conversation with this. I think a very interesting stat that I've been noticing: uh, Shayna Goldman, uh, who is now writing for Sports and done a fantastic job with her couple articles for them. Uh, was using SportLogic data, and she made a note in a recent piece about the Leafs about how they lead the league in five-on-five offensive zone possession time right now by the by their uh, tracking. And I remember in a recent game, in their most recent game um, against the Hurricanes, Sportsnet was flashing a graphic that showed that there was like a five-minute discrepancy or something. It was like eighteen to thirteen in terms of uh, puck possession time between the two teams. And just watching that game, I would not have guessed that at all because I thought the Hurricanes pretty thoroughly outplayed them. I thought they got significantly better chances and all the usual shot metrics we look at indicated that, right? Like they outshot them, they outchanced them, they outscored them. And yet the Leafs had the puck a lot. And I wonder, you know, first off, we can just talk about that metric in isolation, but then as it relates to a team that should be this kind of high octane skilled team, like the Leafs and whether that is an optimal strategy if they are intending to do so, because if it means you're kind of just like playing this stagnant game where you're just 
moving the puck around kind of harmlessly on the outside and cycling and not necessarily doing anything with it, that might not be the best offensive strategy for a team that in theory should be kind of moving up and down the ice and using their talent advantage on any given night to try and outscore teams. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that obviously struck me that puck possession stat, because I think that we did see quite a bit of that last year in terms of the Leafs being happy to kind of carry the puck in the offensive zone, not only into the offensive zone, but once they're in the offensive zone, kind of do the rounds and and, and find that perfect chance. Uh, They were near the bottom in terms of point shots, for example. Uh, And I think that that's pretty much continued here. You know, the thing is that, you know, according to the the data that I have in front of me, uh, they still lead the nhl and expected goals for per 60 at five on five and i believe in like slot shots as well yeah exactly you know they are getting a a ton of quality but i I do remember kind of having conversations with jack Hahn even last year where he was talking about you know whether we maybe have to consider that puck possession itself as opposed to kind of creating a quantity of chances might actually not be the best way to go in in all situations and i mean you know you see kind of the inverse with the habs where they for a while had been kind of a not very high puck possession time team but they would always rack up the shot attempts and everything like that because once they did get into the zone they would just force the issue yeah Yeah. and you know obviously that didn't particularly work for them in terms of getting actual goals either uh but yeah i mean you know for the leafs it really is kind of this dual thing going on right now where on one hand, you do want to kind of hit the brakes and say, okay, this team is leading the league in expected goals for. It has a you know 5.5% shooting percentage. You know They have, uh, I think, like negative nine goals above expected, which is worse than the league by far. I think New Jersey is like minus four right now. Right. And just say, okay, you know, once, you know, and the guys who aren't scoring are Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner and John Tavares, you know, guys who have scored and finished well in the past. Right. So you want to say, okay, just give it some time these guys will score and and maybe one of the reasons that they're looking so frustrated is because they're guys who score 30 40 and 50 goals and they are not scoring any goals right now and then there's the other side where you look at them play like they did against pittsburgh and you see them play against like they did against carolina and think okay maybe there is some legitimate kind of resilience problem with this team where the regression may go the other way around and they might start to actually legitimately struggle in the underlying areas of the game rather than regress upwards back to the mean of, of shooting. Right. Yeah. There, there's this kind of this domino effect of like one thing leads to another, right? Where if, if it's easy for us to say after six or seven games or whatever, like, Oh yeah, their expected goals are super high. If they just keep going this way, they're eventually going to start scoring. But there is the potential that whether it's tackling, you know, whether it's because the players start playing differently, like the, the actual process starts changing in terms of the way the team plays to try to attack and try to fix this. And that could obviously have a, a, an effect on the underlying numbers. I don't I, I think it's fascinating because like any way you look at it, they're due for more goals. And we're recording this on Wednesday, just before uh, tonight's game start and they're playing the Blackhawks and they very conceivably could score eight goals and all of this stuff could be thrown out the window because the numbers are going to wind up progressing just from one game like that. But yeah, I, I thought that, that that point about the the how specifically how long they're holding on to the puck and and how um, that sort of plays in with with expected goals is a really fascinating conversation because we talked about this with the Islanders I believe last year in, our, in one of our playoff previews where um, everyone sort of thought of them as this like horrible offensive team and just really wasn't the case at all. Like in fact, when they will get the puck, they were so sort of strategic and opportunistic with creating off of the rush and the counterattack. And and that is a viable strategy, as weird as it sounds, because everyone would agree that having the puck is better than not having the puck, but it depends, I guess, on what you're doing with it. Yeah, and I think one thing we do have to keep in mind in terms of how they've been holding onto the puck and, and you know how often they've had it in the offensive zone is that you know, it's one thing, and it's like the line that you always have about these offensive teams. is like, well, you want them to have the puck because if they have the puck, the other team doesn't have the puck. Uh, but the issue with that is that they've been one of the worst defensive teams in the league. You know, well, we been, need to talk about Hole and Muzzin. Yeah, yeah. So that that's a, a big part of it. Uh, you know, but really, kind of when it comes down to it, there are very few Leafs that are kind of in the well, I'd say in the blue because uh, of, <laughs> of the player cards. That's right. my my bias. But uh, you know, it really is kind of Matthews and Dermott are the only guys who are kind of in that positive area when you look at their expected goals for and against. You know, everybody else is just kind of in the 
everything is happening, chaos, chances going either way. Right. So if, if you, they are, you know, holding onto the puck for as long in the offensive zone as you, as they are, you would hope that that would have some kind of defensive dividends. And the fact that it really, really isn't, I think is a kind of an indictment of, of maybe how that strategy is playing out and, and maybe points to a more pressing issue in terms of how they're playing, which is not the goals for, but what's happening defensively. Yeah. Oh, I, I'd say, you know, the play of, of Muzzin and Hole in particular has been a major issue. They've been on the ice for 86, five and five minutes together. They've already given up nine goals and, and only scored two, four. Uh, they've been outshot pretty significantly. And it, it seems like the common sort of belief is that Jake Muzzin is, is playing hurt. And I think we'd agree he's a good player. So the fact that the performance has been this bad, like raises a red flag that he might not be a hundred percent. But if that is the case, it's just insane to me that you would be trotting out this player who's a valuable part of your team in the second week of the season if he's so hurt that he's just submarining the team's results. Like, for me, that it, it seems almost inexplicable and so short-sighted. Like, I understand that they're under a lot of pressure and maybe they feel like they don't have better options, but, like, clearly this is not a strategy for success based on the way those two, those two guys have played together. Yeah, no, and, and I mean, that pairing, I mean, especially... Uh, Muzzin's end of things has been a, a real strong point for the team, you know, especially right now because Brody is also, I think, struggling quite a mm -hmm. bit. Uh, you know, Brody and Muzzin, that really is kind of the core of their defense when it comes to preventing scoring chances against, because certainly, you know, Morgan Riley, for all of his offensive talent, is not a scoring chance suppressor. Uh, so if you have Muzzin not playing healthy and Brody struggling, then you really kind of have broken the levy that's going to lead to an avalanche of chances against. And it, it puts the Leafs in a real tough spot because if, if they can't put the puck in the net and they can't defend, then they're going to lose a lot of games. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't really know what else to say about this team. I think Marner's stats right now are, are, are truly just baffling to me. I was like looking at it recently and, he hasn't been on the ice for a five-on-five -five goal for so far. He has one five-on-five -five secondary assist that happened, like the puck went into the net, but when he was on the bench already, so he wasn't on the ice for it, and 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 that's staggering for someone who's been on the ice for over a hundred five-on-five minutes so far. They've had a hundred and fifteen attempts, fifty-one shots on goal in that time, and and so, regardless of your mileage on the player or your frustrations with certain areas of his game, and, and I certainly have them myself in terms of how he's utilizing the power play and. Pretty much any time he shoots the puck, I, I think it's a it's a it's a net positive for the opponent. But it's impossible for this to continue, right? Like the goals are gonna start coming, even if he's playing differently, even if there's a ton of pressure, even if something weird happened, in the documentary and all this stuff. Like I just don't. There's nothing to suggest that this is the new norm. This is a player who has had a, an on ice shooting percentage of over ten percent at five on five for his career, and it's literally at zero now. Like that's just not a thing. Yeah, no, I mean, really, when it comes down to it, the thing that I'm watching for if I'm watching the Leafs is the defense having to fix and and then the the question of, you know, how are they responding in terms of, you know, this is probably the most adversity that's not in the playoffs that they've faced in the past four or five years. You know, are they going to buckle and keep getting outplayed like they have in the past couple of games or are they going to probably play? And I know that that sounds very intangibles and, right. and, and grit of me, but uh I, I do think, you know, when it comes down to it and you're losing 7-1 to one to the Mark Donk Penguins and you're getting, <laughs> you know, destroyed by uh, Freddie Anderson and the Carolina Hurricanes, you know, it does become kind of a mental test of, of you know, how this team is going to respond to these situations. And, and it may well be that they're going to respond by, you know, irrational tactical shifts that don't address the problems uh, or, you know, line combinations getting thrown in the blender that don't make any sense. Uh, but, you know, either way, you know, we've always talked about how, Leafs fans aren't going to care about any regular season results until they can actually do anything in the playoffs. And I think that this is probably as close as those Leafs fans are going to get to kind of how things are going to go in the playoffs is how they're going to respond to this adversity. So th there's, there's a crazy amount of pressure on them that, uh, I mean, people certainly seem to care how the Leafs are doing in the regular season this year. And, and I find yeah. that very interesting, right? Like it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating thought exercise to their two, four and one, if they were six and one, I think, any con any conversation would probably be like, who cares? Let's wait till the playoffs, right? And and yeah. that's understandable. Like they they haven't earned the benefit of the doubt in that regard. Like when Tampa Bay struggles, and we're going to talk about them here in a bit, it's different because we've seen them sort of flip that switch and 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 show us reason to believe that they 
can win in the playoffs. Not not that the Leafs are lacking some sort of intangible quality that prevents them from doing so, but they just literally have not done so yet. And so I understand the skepticism, but it, it, it's it's funny how in two weeks, literally, like it, it flipped on on its head in terms of people being like, I don't care about the regular season. And then all of a sudden it's like the sky is falling and everything is the worst and the, the, we're not going to make it through this season. And it's like, it's seven regular season games. And if they had won all of them, it, no one would even be that excited. So I think we need to kind of keep that in mind. Yeah. But it's the Leafs. So it is. They, so, they could be three and four and we'd still be having these conversations. So where, where, are, we, where are we putting the panic meter on them right now? Cause you know, for the abs, we weren't, we weren't particularly panicked or I, I, are we a bit more panicked about this Leafs team? Because they're the opposite. Like their their underlying numbers are actually better than the Colorados have, and the results aren't there. So you could argue that the process has been more um, encouraging than Colorado's has. Yeah, I was so I, I would not be as worried about them just because. Well, I mean, uh, the Avalanche are I think probably still pretty easily going to make the playoffs. Right. Uh, I think the Leafs are also in a pretty decent situation there, just because the rest of their division, I don't think, uh, other than the Big Four aren't going to pose that much of a threat. Uh, really, I, I think the, the main issues for me just come down to the team defense. Like if they can tighten that up, because if they just kind of swing through the rest of the season with these identical underlying numbers, but the goals start coming and they finish as like the fourth seed in the, in the Atlantic division, you know, while being this poor defensive team, I think that is cause for some concern. Yeah, that's fair. Um, who do you, which, which team you want to do next? Uh, well, I just wrote on Seattle. All right, let's do it. the top of my head. Let's do it. I, uh, I, I've been watching their games. I particularly focused on the past two because I figured we'd be talking about them. But um, I'll give you the floor in terms of teeing us up here for, for the Kraken. Yeah, so I think it's fair to say that this team we anticipated was going to be a very defense-focused group. Uh, but with some, I think, underrated offensive elements to them, at, at least on five, at 5-on-5, five five. Uh, some decent play drivers there, uh, like Everly and Schwartz, for example, who we figured you know they had played well in top six roles before, and, and that would kind of carry over. Uh, but you know, from my perspective, and, and I think kind of anybody who was building any kind of analytical model or anything, you know, what really stood out was the fact that the defense really did have a, a really good track record in terms of how those guys were scoring chance suppressors uh a lot of guys who were in that kind of 90th percentile or higher in that area and it led to the team being considered one of the best teams in the pacific division you know or the western conference depending on on how enthusiastic the model was and so far i think you know early on obviously it's, it's kind of you know they've only played two home games they've had guys who've been hurt yanni gord and cal yarncrock are just kind of entering the lineup now uh but i think that they have been disappointing in terms of kind of how they've performed you know not only defensively where they've been a below average team uh, but also offensively where they just have been really dysfunctional and and not really able to generate anything dangerous at all which doesn't bode super super well right. for how you know whether they're gonna compete with Edmonton and Vegas for the top of the division like yes. some of the models said they would yeah well certainly I think um I think Yanni Gord coming back in the lineup is huge, and he's looked fantastic in the three games I believe he's played for them, and so that's going to help quite a bit. I, 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 that crowd is amazing. I thought, like you know, in the Canucks game, it was obviously fantastic in the opener again in the Habs. Like it was, it was electric. I think that's going to help them quite a bit. I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how I. I still don't know how I feel about him. Like I, I have a certain level of skepticism because I think that struggle to create offensively is going to carry over, even though they do have these individual players who have performed in top six scoring roles before i think they're being asked to potentially shoulder a different type of burden like jordan eberle having matt barzell get you the puck versus yanni gord or whoever is going to be playing as his center i do think it's it's a slightly different proposition in terms of what we should expect from his goal scoring output right and so while I think he's a fantastic player and they're going to generate more scoring chances than they have, and I think they'll be they'll be fine, um, I do think that is something something to consider, and I think this could be a, a persistent issue for them. Yeah, well, I was looking at some of the numbers, you know, not just kind of their, you know, Corsi and expected goals and stuff, but just kind of how they relate to one another, <laughs> and it really did kind of strike me the way that they generate offense because I remember uh, hearing, I don't know if it was from you or if it was from Ian Tulloch or, or Jack Hahn, uh, that. 
uh, they were interested to see what Dave Haxtell did to this team in terms of offense strategy. That was you. Okay. Uh, saying, you know, that he was a guy in the past who took a, who his teams took a lot of point shots, didn't get a lot going on in front. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly what's happened so far. You know, I, I crunched the numbers today. Seattle's defensemen have taken 44% of the team's shot attempts so far. Uh, and, you know, if you look at the heat maps, it's all bright red at the points and then nothing going on in front of the slot. And, you know, to the the question is kind of is that a systems flaw on Haxtell's part where he's really kind of empowering Dunn and Giordano and, you know, even guys like Larson to just throw pucks on net and try to get things going from there? Uh, or is that reflective of what you talked about where, you know, I think kind of the defense that uh, people like me and, and also, you know, Dom did on the on the podcast last mm-hmm. last week there is saying, well, you know, these guys, they've played top six roles before, you know, they're good offense drivers for a reason you know if they maybe aren't able to kind of carry the puck into the offensive zone and and create on the rush or things like that you know that might also play into them using the defenseman as a bit of a crutch and i mean you know it worked uh in that vancouver game with dunn and giordano getting two goals but i uh, i don't know if that's a sustainable thing and, and i mean you know 44 percent of your shots coming from defensemen like that's that's four points higher than the most defenseman heavy team last year so yeah. if they keep that up you know it's kind of hard to see them turning things around offensively that much it's so weird because hackstall was obviously with the leafs last year and, and and in the past and and they were like as you mentioned earlier like they did not take any point shots and so uh it, it seems bizarre to me that he would come from that and 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 be just you know, telling, dictating his defenseman to just shoot as much as they can. I wonder if it's just kind of like a random kind of natural byproduct of the game so far. But I'm, I'm curious to see how their games against a team like Edmonton play, right? Because they're, they're, they're obviously constructed very differently and they profile analytically very differently. Uh, we saw in that Canucks game, they obviously wound up blowing it late and losing it, but I thought they were getting a lot of reasonably good scoring chances throughout the course of that game, partly because the Canucks are a mess at times defensively and are kind of helter-skelter all over their zone and it led to quality chances for them and they should conceivably get those against the Oilers as well and obviously it'll come down to whether they can convert them compared to the chances the Oilers get and I do like Edmonton's chances of converting their opportunities more even if they're uh, you know fewer in, qu- in quantity um, but I, I want to see a bunch of games between those two teams just to see how that kind of push and pull between strengths and weaknesses plays out. Yeah, and I think that's exactly it. Like the the interesting thing for me about their defense is that it really is the inverse of what they're doing offensively, where they've actually been you know above average and, and actually pretty solid at preventing shots on goal and, and shot attempts. You know, they rank uh, sixth in in shots on goal against you know the. In, in the good way right. uh, and 11th in, in preventing shot attempts against. Uh, and then, you know, meanwhile, they're a below average expected goals against team. Uh, you know, their average shot quality, I think is 27th in the league. Uh, and obviously, you know, their goaltending has allowed quite a bit more than that, uh, which, which means it's kind of the opposite of what we might've expected where you saw these guys like Larson and like Alexiak and, and even Giordano who have been in the past, very good at kind of protecting that slot area. And it's been kind of the exact opposite where, you know, maybe they're not allowing as many point shots, but what they have been allowing has been pretty good. And, and, and I would imagine that a lot of that comes off of kind of quick punch rush chances, which if you're playing against teams like Edmonton, for example, or, or Vegas, you know, you're going to be in quite a bit of trouble if you're allowing your opponents to enter the zone and, and get scoring right. chances with speed. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, Recognized employees with custom ink show customer appreciation with custom ink outfit your teams with custom ink easily add your logo to your favorite products and brands at custom make custom ink your custom gear partner with great customer service, quality products and all in pricing along with personalized help when you need it and an easy to use website when you don't all backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Do it all today at customink.com. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. 
Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right. Let's move on to Tampa Bay. Do you have anything on Tampa Bay? I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. They're obviously 3-3-1 three, three and one now. They had a nice win against the Penguins on Tuesday night. Uh, it was, I believe, their first... It took them until that game to get their first lead of the season, which is pretty remarkable. They're leaving Chicago as the only team left that doesn't have one. Um, did we make enough of what an impact losing the entirety of that Gord, Goodrow, and Coleman line would do to this team's results? Um, because I, I saw a lot of people refer to them as their third line. And, you know, we've talked about the fact that they were really their second line in terms of usage. And in the playoffs, Yanni Gord was literally their number one uh, forward in terms of ice time. And so it was a bigger loss than I think people were making it out to be. They obviously still have a ton of talent. And when Nikita Kucherov comes back, like I still wouldn't pick against them because they're that terrifying. But it, it is a, a significantly more uphill battle when you look at their lineup now and that depth compared to where it's been in the past. Yeah, I think for sure. You know, there was an assumption, I guess, that you know, the next guy up would just automatically be able to make things work for Tampa Bay just because that's been the case in the past where they've been able to pull these AHL guys out of nowhere and, and slot them into the lineup. Uh, and I just don't think that that's necessarily happened. You know, the Ross Colton hasn't done particularly well. You know, the rest of that bottom six hasn't been doing fantastic. And and I think a lot of where it shows, you know, the, the impact that uh, losing that kind of entire third, second, you know, right. line is is you know it's not just kind of a defensive thing because they've been relatively good defensively this year uh but i think people do or did understate kind of the fact that those players were also pretty good offensively as well you know especially gord and uh and coleman i think gave them some options in terms of depth that really helped help them out especially with kucherov missing the whole season and i think things started out quite well for the lightning in terms of their underlying numbers and since kucherov has been gone they've slipped quite a bit uh and maybe that's an area where it's easy to absorb losing Nikita Kucherov when you have two first lines and one second line and one third line. But now if you have a first line, a second line and, you know, a bottom six, that isn't really that dangerous. Suddenly losing, you know, the best or second best winger in the world is not quite as easy to absorb. Yeah. I will say the one encouraging thing for them over these past two weeks is just seeing Victor Hedman with two fully functional wheels, uh, look like Victor Hedman again. And his number is just sort of um, understandably just kind of bounce back to to levels that we'd expect from him, right? Like it, it was it was so weird to me having arguments with people last year that he was actually fine and he was Victor Hedman in quotation marks because he clearly wasn't, and that was through no fault of his own. Like he probably should not have been playing because he was clearly physically limited. They wound up winning the cup. I thought he looked better as the postseason went along, but like for him, part of the his brilliance is being able to get up and down the ice at his size. And I think he's like the best at jumping in as a trailer on the rush and, and, and just somehow like hiding in plain sight, despite the fact that he's like the biggest guy out there. And so just seeing him move around more freely and seeing the results bounce back to where they are, that that's such a massive development for them because despite the fact that he was injured and, and we saw the numbers dip, you never know sometimes a player just, loses it or enters a different phase of their career or gets hurt and never bounces back physically. And like he just, just by the snap of the fingers clearly is back to being Victor Hedman. Yeah. Well, it makes my life a lot easier when, uh, <laughs> right. when Victor Hedman is a good hockey player. And, you know, last year there was quite a bit of, uh, you know, these models must be broken if they say Victor Hedman isn't, you know, the best defenseman in the NHL by two miles, right. even if he was playing on one leg. But I mean, you definitely saw like last year, especially, you know, having that injury just completely, you know, no pun intended, kneecapped what he was able to actually do on the ice when it came to jumping into the rush, especially because, you know, he still had that instinct to do it and he still did it quite a bit. And I think that's a big reason that they got out chance to outscored is because he would jump up into the rush. He wouldn't quite be able to keep up and then the play would go down the other way and, and he wouldn't really be able to 
help them prevent it. And, you know, when you have Jan Ruda as the safety valve, that's not exactly the best thing. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Hedman doing well is obviously encouraging, you know, McDonough has, has been doing pretty well as well. Uh, you know, it still is a little bit painful to see Hedman skating out there with Ruda day in and day out, but it's, uh, I mean, that's the biggest thing that they could have back. And, and if they can at least just kind of absorb things with, with Hedman gone or with uh, Kucherov yeah. gone, sorry, then that's that's going to be important. But I think the Vasilevsky is also worth talking about as well. Well, is it insane to you that the best they could do was Brian Elliott this offseason after how badly things went with Curtis McElhinney last year? Like, I understand they're 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 working on a budget and they're not going to invest considering how much they've invested in Vasilevsky. And they believe, I I think, that he can play more than we typically want goalies to play, even though his performance has been dipping in regular seasons as his workload increases expectedly. Um, but it's just like watching Brian Elliott in that game against Buffalo. It was you're anytime they don't play Vasilevsky, it's like, they're just punting the two points and I get it. Like come the postseason, it's not an issue because Vasilevsky's going to play every single minute and he's going to do really well probably. And, 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 and that's fine, but you have to get there. And I think as their margin for error shrinks with, the loss of that line with Kucherov out of the lineup, I think not having that luxury to have a reliable spell here and there for Vasilevsky is, is kind of an oversight on their part. Yeah, I'm willing to be a little bit more lenient towards them just because it seems like, is that the best backup goalie they could get? Applies to like 15 of the teams in the NHL that were signing a backup goalie this well, year. Well, it speaks to like a fundamental philosophical flaw with yeah. the league where it's like, let's get an old guy because he's yeah. going to be good in the room and comfortable on the bench. We'll get Martin Jones or yeah. we'll get, uh, yeah. You know, I, I, I think the thing is that you know, Vasilevsky obviously had a Vesna caliber season last year or, or right in that wheelhouse. So far, he's been a little below expected. Uh, he's had some ups and downs. Obviously, that first game against Pittsburgh didn't go exactly how he had planned it. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that that's also an important thing uh, for this team as well. We'll just be trying to get, if not, you know, he hasn't always been like the Vesna caliber guy when it comes to like the above expected numbers. Yes. But if he can at least kind of keep up and, and be in that kind of top 10 range, then I think that that will solve a couple of their issues. I think he will be like, he, he certainly was there last year. I think yeah. you don't necessarily want to be out of necessity getting into the habit of playing him 65 to 70 times when you're hoping that he's also going to play 20 times come the postseason, uh, especially in this weird year where I think the second half of the season is going to be kind of compressed schedule wise after the Olympics. But yeah, it, it's, it, it's something to monitor. Like I, I think ultimately, um, it's, it, it's, an, it's an inconsequential issue compared to like some of the issues other teams face. But when you're like nitpicking here and you're kind of like wondering why they did what they did, I, I think it's it's a small problem. I, it was fascinating watching. I watched the Penguins broadcast in the second game, the the one they just won, and just hearing the broadcast being like. Oh, the the Penguins have done their scouting report on Vasilevsky. You got to shoot high on him. It's like that's lit- literally every goalie. Like the goalies are so good that you're not beating them down low. You need to basically pick a quarter, and then I guess that's their weakness. And I really want that to to be stripped from broadcast. That that type of analysis. Yeah, if your analysis of Vasilevsky is shoot high, then <laughs> I think that that shows you that your analysis of kind of picking flaws in goaltending's <laughs> plays is not the best way to go. Yeah. Um, all right. Is there any other teams that you want? I know you, you were saying you wanted to to get to Calgary a bit. Yeah, yeah. Just because Calgary was the one that I really stuck my neck out on over the summer. Yes. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So because there were a lot of people who were very, very down on the Flames. You know, thought that they were going to tailspin and be near the bottom of that division. You know, they had confidently were saying, you know, uh, not only Seattle but also you know L.A. and maybe even San Jose were going to pass them and, and things like that. And my answer the entire summer was. Daryl Sutter mm-hmm. you know if there's one thing that you can count on Daryl Sutter doing it's out shooting and out chancing his opponents and I think people do kind of get it in their heads that if there's you know any NHL associated person who owns a barn is automatically kind of this dinosaur who's going to get pummeled in possession chances and play goons every night and things right. like that uh whereas i mean daryl sutter you know he probably isn't looking at you know money puck every morning but you know the things that he values in a team and, and what he wants them to do tends to result in those outcomes and i mean you saw it with the flames results at the end of last season where their underlying numbers were were exceptional and you know for as much as their defense obviously 
took quite a few hits in, in terms of some personnel choices. Uh, you know, adding Coleman, you know, even adding Pitlick, you know, one of their biggest problems last year was the penalty kill. Right. Uh, I think that they, at least at forward, addressed some of their biggest issues. Do you think issues. they acquired Zadorov so that they could get more in-season practice on the penalty kill? <laughs> I think they just might have. Although they've, uh, you know, for all the talk that Zadorov was going to be on the top pair all, all, all season long, they sure discarded that idea pretty quickly. I mean, it's just what it's it's so evident that like oliver shillington for example just a significantly better defenseman and, and it makes it so puzzling that they not only traded a third round pick or whatever to acquire Zidorov, but then gave him three million or whatever they did like yeah. i just don't understand that usage of, of assets well i mean the idea of having tanev go from quinn hughes to noah hannafin to nikita Zadorov was a little depressing just so testing i'm testing the boundaries yeah, of like who he can carry exactly <laughs> just you know I, yeah really testing the uh, the rapm models on that one but yeah. uh yeah I, I, and and that's the thing you know I, again i think people had the idea that sutter was going to be playing a lineup of goons every night and that he was going to have good ranson on the top pair and Zadorov in the you know top four all season and everything uh and he's shown a, a pretty quick willingness to kind of adjust things and and make you know the changes that that have to be made and and as a result you know as i think anticipated you know they're running a 57 percent uh corsi share and a 55 percent expected goal share like yeah. wh- whatever they're doing it's it's working and i think it's catching a couple people off guard you know even if maybe the underlying numbers would have told us in the summer that you know these early results are are pretty much what was expected yeah no certainly you and i were uh you know if it winds up happening we can we can post our, our dms with uh with timestamps but we were we were in on uh markstrom for vesna bets because it was like he's a good goalie it's gonna be a good system they're gonna be a pretty good team and assuming he can stay healthy like he's gonna have really good numbers and he's yeah. looked awesome so far aside from that first game against edmonton we gave up a couple goals but i i i think it's a really good team and i think people are sleeping on them I, you know they, they just went and and you know, comfortably beat the Rangers and the Devils. So I think people are going to pay attention a little bit, a little bit more, but um, like, I'm, I'm very optimistic about this team, especially in that division. Like I think, yeah, there's, there's, there's very few things to nitpick with them. Yeah. The, the one issue that I can see happening potentially is that he did have a reputation in the past for really leaning on his starters right. quite a bit. And, you know, I don't know if you've seen the depth chart of goaltending in, uh, in Calgary, but it's pretty much Jacob Markstrom. And then, the guy that you and the man of Odar. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, and and maybe he's going to, you know, it's goaltending. Maybe he's going to win the Vesna next year, but, uh, I can see absolutely a situation where Sutter just kind of plays the hell out of, uh, Markstrom for the entire season. Uh, I don't know where he is on Sweden's step chart for the Olympics as well. Mm. Off the top of my head, he probably would be in that starters net there. Yeah, I think he's a really good goalie. And, yeah, and they just over they, they overplayed him last year, especially at the start, and they were just lying on him so much even before Sutter took over. And and you know he got hurt in his performance dip, but yeah, I think he's really good. Yeah, it occurred to me that Robin Leonard is Swedish, so also he's also a good goalie. There. Yes, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, that would be one potential concern would be if maybe Markstrom gets overplayed a bit or if he gets hurt, then then things could slide. But again, all the concerns about kind of the roster and, and you know, some of the changes that were made over the summer, you know, it, it's kind of like a, a Mike Sullivan situation where like if you if you have a coach that's good enough and has a, a strong enough track record, they can kind of just get guys to play a system. It increases and, your baseline so much. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I, I am just as enthusiastic about Calgary as I was over the summer. I don't think they're going to win a cup or anything, but uh, I'm, I'm especially excited to see guys like Lindholm and, and Manjipani kind of getting their due from people who maybe have forgotten that the Calgary Flames existed for the past little while. Yep. Uh, that's, that's, I'm very pleased to see that. Yep. I'm with you on that. Um, one final team I have here is, you know, we've been talking mostly, I feel like Calgary obviously being the exception here, but we're talking mostly about like underperforming teams, uh, a team that's overperforming so far. I believe they haven't lost yet are, are the blues and, you know, their, their percentages are through the roof. Like, they're basically scoring on, like, every shot they take, and, and that's certainly not going to continue. But I do – I have to say, I'm going to be doing our watchability rankings here soon. I've been – I'm surprised at how much I've enjoyed watching the Blues. Like, I think their forwards are – it's a legitimately fun group of players, and it's not something typically synonymous with St. Louis Blues hockey. But, you know, adding Buchnevich, adding Saad, who has, who's been out for the past couple of games, but, you know, Kairu and Thomas stepping up and, and, and just seeing – Vlad Tarasenko, who they like literally could not give away this offseason and understandably given his salary and injury concerns, his, his shot rate and goal rate had been dipping for each of the past four seasons. 
and his shot rate right now is absolutely insane. And and it's six games. It's, I'm not expecting him to have like 28 shot attempts per 60 or whatever that he has right now. But like he he looks good. I don't want to say he looks like you know Vlad Tarasenko in his prime, but he looks much closer to that player than anything we saw over the past couple of years. And and that's very encouraging. And and this is a team that you know is going to surprise people in terms of what they typically expect from from St. Louis Blues hockey. Yeah, and that was always the possibility. I mean, this team has been playing pretty chaotic hockey so far yeah. from, from a pace perspective, right. uh, which, you know, Bennington has been pretty good, which they've pretty much, you know, needed him to be uh, in terms of kind of how much they've been allowing defensively. I mean, I, I always find this team hilarious because uh, just from an underlying numbers perspective, just mostly for David Perron reasons, <laughs> like there is whatever David Perron is doing out there. It is confusing the hell out of analytical models. Like yeah. he has ranked as one of the worst scoring chance generators in the league for the past couple of years in terms of like when he is on the ice, there are no shots that come from the slot. And yet he scores, you know, 70, 80 points. You know, he has a, you know, he had a hat trick this year. Yeah. I think he's been producing extremely well. And, you know, I looked at how the the model has kind of changed his view on him over these first couple of games, and it's even lower on him offensively than it was before. <laughs> so I, I just have to admire anybody who's willing to break the models that much by just scoring goals and, and getting assists on outside shots consistently. Especially at this stage of his career. Like, he's been around forever now. Like, I, I remember looking, I think it was before the season, I looked at his age, and I was like, I was stunned to see how old he was. Yeah, yeah, he's a, he's a 2007 yeah. drafter, I think, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I remember being psyched about him getting traded to the Penguins right. before they won the Cup. You know, obviously they traded him for, for Hagelin. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I mean, at that point, it really was kind of a, oh, this guy is going to max out as like a 45, 50-point guy. And then he went to Vegas, and I think that kind of you know jolted yep. his career a bit and you know back in st louis he wins a cup and, and now he's doing this where he was i think point per game or almost a point per game last year well it's an awesome story like his career yeah. very easily could have been derailed with those concussions while he was in his first tenure with st louis and then you know just getting bounced around and you never know how that's going to turn out for a player's career but yeah yeah he's been quite a story um all right let's uh let's finish this with I have a listener question here. We don't typically do like mailbag stuff on the podcast, but I'm going to start doing them uh, in written form for free P ringside. And I decided to take one of the questions I got from a listener here from, from Meeks M E E Q S asks, what's the biggest current market inefficiency for you in the league? I'm putting you in the spot here. I didn't, yeah. give, you, I didn't give you any prep time. Yeah. Meeks, one of my favorite reply guys. Yeah. Meeks is a big time reply guy. Uh, Shout out to Meeks. Want me to go? Uh, 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 do you want me to start the convo here? Yeah, yeah. I have a I have a vague idea, but uh, why don't you? I would take say. Away, dear? I would say um, being able to properly evaluate your own young players as a team, like it seems obvious, but I find that so many teams struggle with pulling the plug on prospects that they invested draft capital in before it's too late. And being able to recognize that you might have whiffed or the players and who you thought they were and still before the league catches up because you you should be the first team that catches up to that. You're seeing them play all the time. You're seeing them practice. You're, you know, you're, you're watching them more closely than anyone else. And being able to – and that's something Tampa Bay has done really well over the years. And being able to recoup assets or flip them for someone who can actually help you, I think, is really important. We tend to focus on – identifying players in free agency from other teams or, you know, winning trades. But I, I think being able to value your own personnel and not um, get too hyped up on your own players is, is something that smart teams do really well and, and not enough of the league does uh, effectively enough. Yeah. So uh, my, my first thought there was, was on the players, like, like we talked about Devon before <laughs> uh, where, you know, Jack on one thing that he's emphasized is these traits that are overvalued and undervalued in right. players. So, you know, the overvalued traits would be, you know, taking shots from the point or boxing people out in front or things like that. Uh, and the undervalued traits would be essentially everything that Devon does. does. Right. Uh, so I think from a, you know, talent evaluation perspective, that's, that's a pretty solid one. Uh, but one thing that I've been kind of thinking about is off ice stuff. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean kind of, you know, like, you know, in the locker room or anything like that, but I just mean like player development and coaching stuff, right. for example. So for example, you know, I'm the last guy on earth that could be described as like a goalie guy, but it does seem strange to me that goalie coaches are not in kind of higher demand of teams, you know, teams will go out and spend, you know, millions and millions of dollars to bring in a high, you know, caliber goalie. And yet 
you don't really see kind of bidding wars emerging for goalie coaches or, or anything like that. You know, if I was kind of put in charge of a franchise, one of the first things that I would do would just be to basically ask everybody who the best goaltending coach out there was and immediately poach him for double what he's making. Because, Are you saying this because the Penguins went through this? Well, well, I, I mean, that was one thing where people were talking about how they had to move Jari this summer, right. uh, you know, desperately had to move in. And I, I didn't have my hopes up at all that they were going to do that because, you know, the contract and, and how he had performed in the playoffs, it really didn't seem like a, a likely thing. Right. And, you know, essentially in the summer, they, instead of making the goalie, change they make the goalie coach change and it's obviously super early but Jari's looked pretty good so far uh you know it just seems like like something where the the inefficiency is paying big for a goalie and it would seem to me that kind of making sure that you have everything going on behind the scenes to put them in a position to succeed i mean we've heard things about guys like ian clark for example mm-hmm. uh or or what they have going on in in uh you know in the isle uh, islanders for example yeah. uh you know, it's just in the aisle, in, in the aisle, <laughs> on the aisle, I yeah. guess would be more appropriate. And uh, certainly not the uh, Montreal Island. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it just seems like like that is, is something that is not necessarily, you know, these guys aren't getting paid about as much as you might expect. And I think that you could probably extend that to other player development kinds of things. You know, the the cost of these player development coaches and stuff is a lot less than the cost of an NHL salary. Uh, and you know, if you have like, for example, with, with Zach Hyman, for example, would you rather kind of go out and spend five and a half million dollars over seven years to get Zach Hyman? Or would you rather try to develop some Zach Hyman's yourself? It seems like the cheaper option there would be to try to develop your own Zach Hyman's and you're not guaranteed, guaranteed to succeed, but I don't think you're going to be any worse from having a more fleshed out player development staff. Yeah, no, I think that's really well said. I think, you know, from a player evaluation perspective, I think, for the most part, you still see some whiffs in terms of people not understanding how individual shooting percentage works and, and you know, buying super high on players who just had these out, outlier seasons or, or, you know, trading away a player and thinking he all of a sudden sucks but just because he shot very poorly. Um, but I think on-ice shooting percentage is still something that messes with people's minds. And, and I have to admit, even, like, for myself, for example, where I can be, like, if I'm watching a bunch of a certain player or a certain team, like, you just – you kind of like trick yourself into believing that, oh, like they're playing like super, super poorly or oh, something, something's going wrong. And then you, you wind up looking at it, it's like, oh, yeah, he's not getting any saves or, you know, the puck's just not going into the net. And I think we sometimes tend to overvalue um, the control individual players have on that. You know, there's going to be extremes, obviously, uh, of players that can either drive high or low percentages. But for the most part, if you just kind of stick with the process there, I think things will even out and you have to sort of, you have to train yourself or you have to remind yourself not to just go purely off of the eye test because even a really experienced hockey watcher can, can wind up being tricked. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's always the first thing that I say whenever somebody asks me what is kind of the, the stat that they need to understand, you yeah. know, it's never war or RAPM. Like yeah. the first step that you need to take is basically understanding that, you know, every single stat that you value can be completely messed with by a couple puck bounces. And, you know, I I think teams have maybe gotten a little bit better about this. Uh, I mean, based on the fact that Michael Bunting didn't get a six year, $25 million (laughs) contract, uh, that's probably a good sign. But uh, yeah, I I think it's, it's still a a good, I think in terms of like for fans though, I think fans definitely get tricked by it. Yeah. Oh yeah. For for fans, it's it's one of the most important things. I I think that that isn't really considered properly. Um, All right. Second question here. How have analytics changed the way you watch games slash um, has it made you notice things when you are watching games that that um, maybe you didn't before or like, you know, before you started really thinking about this stuff? Like, like how has your um, viewing experience changed over the years or more recently? Well, I think and this maybe even just ties into the chat that we just had uh that it just has made me a little bit less reactionary and and maybe not overvaluing things like turnovers or or you know guys missing the net or things like that as as much as i used to you know i i used to you know back in the day when i was just purely kind of a diehard penguins fan and not somebody who was actually you know having to think about these things more carefully you know i would form these kind of hard set opinions and i would just get locked into confirmation bias you know first game of the season that would last all the way through uh I think from an actual perspective of, you know, what am I valuing while watching? I think more of that has come from reading people who are writing cerebrally about the game, you know, like 
valuing things like, you know, controlled zone entries mm -hmm. and, and exits and things like right. that. And just kind of watching in general more carefully than I was before, uh, as opposed to, you know, I'm keeping an eye on who's on the ice for which shot attempts and things like that. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned this earlier as an overvalued skill, because for me, like I've, I've developed such a hatred for, for point shots. Like I, I watching defensemen that just wildly fire into shin pads is something that I didn't necessarily care too much about even like five six years ago i would just look at raw shot attempts and just be like all right yeah there's a lot happening in the offensive zone when this player is on the ice but then just watching defensemen that just basically kill possessions for their team like there's a couple of nice passes and then all of a sudden the puck gets them and they just they just aimlessly shoot it and then the other team recovers it and they're out of the zone and it's over like i just that drives me crazy and if i was a coach with any of these teams i would be harping on that a lot i think the other thing is it's actually really made me um, more of an eye test guy, funny enough. like I, Because when you look at certain trends or you wonder why a player's numbers are the way they are, that's actually where I find the most use out of it. It makes me want to watch more closely to try to figure out why it's happening. Like Rasmus Ristolainen is such a great example where his analytics were so bad for so long and then people were just so infatuated with his size and... Uh, his ability to be physical, right? And then you watch it, and, and he, there's no one in the league that loses more battles around the net than he does. And it's just like a lack of hockey sense where he just doesn't seem to understand. And like he's punishing a guy with a cross check while the guy's stick is on the ice, tapping it into the net. And yeah, he was physical, but the puck went into his net because he could have played that way better. And so for me, like trying to look at the numbers and then really hone in on figuring out why they are the way they are it, is the most rewarding process I think uh, involved for me. Yeah. I think that's a great point. It's like once you get into analytics, it is going to make you a bigger hockey fan because you're, so, you're yeah. more invested in it and that is going to lead you to want to watch more hockey. And it's going to mean that, you know, if you already know the analytics, then you're going to want to naturally connect the dots of, of what's not necessarily being shown to you or, or find out the process behind it. So you are going to be looking more carefully for that stuff. I think that's a, that's a really good point. Um, all right. Well, that's going to be it for today's show. Um, let's plug some stuff. What um, what have you been working on? And uh, let's tell tell the listeners where they can check out our written work because we're obviously colleagues. Yep. So uh, still EP Ringside. Uh, have a piece on Seattle that's dropping today that uh, you will already have heard the gist of in the past 45 minutes or so. Uh, but a, a lot more detailed stats and, and some insight into kind of the projection models and maybe what has changed in, from those projections uh, just from these first couple games there. Uh, and then you can follow me on Twitter at JFreshHockey. Uh, you can subscribe to my Patreon, which is under the same name. And uh, yeah, that pretty much covers what I'm doing right now. Yeah, People, people should go subscribe to EP Ringside and go go read the work. I, I'm, I'm really proud of the, the quality of the content that we have up there on pretty much a, a daily basis. So uh, not to sound like a, like a company show, but I, I believe in the work that we're putting out there. And, and I think if people enjoy this podcast and enjoyed our conversation, they're going to enjoy reading the stuff that, that me, you, Ryan Lambert, and everyone on the website puts up. So uh, go subscribe and uh, yeah, keep up the good work, man. This was, this was fun. I'm glad we finally got to do this in person and, uh, and hopefully people enjoyed it. And we're definitely going to, do a show here again sometime soon down the road. Sounds good. Episode 647. The Hockey PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO cast.